The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Oh, what a day. Um, I'm glad to be standing up here. Really, I am. And um, I'm glad for the previous messages that have gone before me. Um, It's been a good day in church. And... uh, it's interesting because Dan talked about affliction today and not knowing the reason why. And uh, today we're going to be talking about chastisement. And uh, sometimes we can't even see the difference. We don't know if we're being chastised or afflicted. Um, and really the answer still comes down to the same thing, and that's trusting God. And uh, I saw that in Andrew's sermon also, where we put our trust in our money or in God. So our text tonight, actually we I want to pray first. I need that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word and your presence and all that you've given us and done for us. And Father, we're so unworthy and we need you every step of the way. And so we just pray that you would be here and strengthening us in Jesus' name. Amen. So have it your way. You probably think that I was in a Burger King when uh, I wrote this message, but that is actually not the truth. I don't know where it came from. Hopefully it works out somehow in the message. And uh, yeah, Jeremiah 16, verse 19 to Jeremiah 17, verses, verse 8, is where we'll be reading from. Um, and well, one of the first things I realized when I started there was how difficult it is to understand the prophets and and much of the Old Testament without having a good uh, understanding of the context and when they were written. So the first thing we're going to do is kind of unpack what's going on in Jeremiah's time. In 722 BC, God had let the northern kingdom of Israel fall to the Assyrians as a punishment, a chastisement for their great sins of, one, worshipping idols everywhere, just everywhere you looked, they, they weren't worshipping God. And it's strange to us that the people of God weren't worshipping God, but um, they weren't. And uh, they were placing their trust in foreign armies. God had given them the land, and they were supposed to occupy it. Um, but what they did is they let other nations kind of rule over them, like what we saw in Jesus' time with the Romans. And so after Israel falls, some of the Jews would go to the southern kingdom, Judah, and for the next 120 years they lived there, and that was the last place, uh, the last um, area where God's people um, had basically rulership, and even under sometimes other kingdoms. Um, There were moments in that next 120 years under kings like Hezekiah um, where they had positive religious and moral uh, reform. Um, Hezekiah even was blessed by God um, with a miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem um, from the Syrians as when they came and, and tried to sack Jerusalem. Josiah, he helped to uh, recover the lost book of the law. I mean, they were so lost that they had literally lost their Bible. All of, all the word of God that they had 
was misplaced and forgotten about. Um, but these brief national movements were overshadowed tremendously by the more common and wicked actions of kings like Manasseh, who executed prophets, the prophets of God, and sacrificed his own son through the fire, like what was common in that day for what we would expect, the, the heathen nations. Um, and then his son Amon, who followed exactly in Manasseh's footsteps. These evil kings worshipped idols and paid tributes for the strength and support of other nations rather than trusting in God. This was evil in the sight of God and always led to an increasing degree of religious and moral compromise. As we all know, you cannot serve two masters, and so Judah became increasingly estranged from God. And as time passed in that area to the north and east of them, a great power rose uh, called Babylon. They swept across the northern parts of Palestine, um, just sweeping away Syria and um, even dealing quite harshly with Egypt, pushing them out of the land. Um, it, it, became, it came to the point where Egypt and Assyria were doing all that they could just to stand, and so they would even form alliances. Um, and obviously Babylon was led by Nebuchadnezzar at this time. And here we see Judah with all of their sin, all of their compromise, still technically the final outpost of God's people, his consecrated people, his promised people, and Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside remain the last bastion of Jehovah left on the face of the earth. With such a power as Babylon threatening them, you would think that they would finally turn to God and finally trust him, but that's not what we see. And so... Um, yeah, as they continued just to get worse and worse over that 120 years, um, Jeremiah and Isaiah and some of those prophets come on the scene, and here we have a confession in uh, verse 19 of chapter 16. Uh, here's Jeremiah. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, and my refuge in the day of affliction. Jeremiah got it. God was his refuge in this day. The Gentiles shall come unto you from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are not gods? This is the answer to all that had gone wrong. We see here that Jeremiah is so convinced of who God is, the maker of heaven and earth, the self-existent one, the almighty king, who had saved them so many times before, he is so sure of it. He says even the Gentiles, even the heathens, are going to see this. They're going to know who God is by what God is planning to do to his people in Jerusalem, the chastisement that's coming upon them. Does any of this, any of this, their history and their, their circumstances sound relevant to what we have today? We haven't lost our Bibles, but are we reading them? Do we know what's in them? Do we know the Lord, really? Do we find ourselves at His feet in our time of affliction? That'll be a good indicator as to where we're placing our trust. Where do we go when things get tough? Or do we let our hearts run to the idols of our imaginations? 
we should be considering these things of ourselves and our churches and possibly our nation. I know we don't have the same political setup that they had, but we got to think about these things. And so moving forward in the text, verse 21. Uh, the Lord, the Lord actually, he concerns himself with these things, and this is what he says in verse 21. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Here God is making a promise. He declares that Judah will know that he is the I Am. He says we'll know in that verse three times. And we see that often in Scripture when it's emphasizing a point. God is like a father who disciplines his children. He's reminding them that they belong to him. You can't discipline somebody else's children as much as you would want to sometimes. Um, They're his creation. They're utterly dependent on his strength, whether they know it or not. This is a promise from God who has great things for his children. He has a whole kingdom and, and all of its goods to give to them. And they're throwing it away. We have to ask ourselves also, is God dealing with us sometimes? Or is our judgment coming? As his child, are we walking in his ways? Because God does promise that he will deal with us. Chapter 17, 1 starts with the sin of Judah. It says it's written on their hearts with a pen or it's written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond it is graven upon the tablet of their heart not the soft fleshy flesh of a heart the tablet their hard hearts and upon the horns of their altars Judah's sin was marked with the most permanent of instruments the diamond is the hardest thing that they would have known at that time and I assume it still is I know it's definitely one of the hardest is it yeah, and that is what's used to engrave on their hearts. Um, what does it mean, though, to have their sin engraved on the altars? I did find that there was a little bit of debate as to what that act, like specifically meant. It's a little ambiguous because there were so many altars at the time. But what we know for sure is that their sin was gouged deep in the secret places of their heart, and it was also gouged on the actual instruments that were designed to atone for their sins for all the world to see. And so that record of their sin stands against them. Is our sin still standing as a record against us? Or are our our hearts still hardened with sin? Or do we trust a Christ who places, replaces our sin with his law on our hearts? In Colossians 2.14, Scripture tells us that Christ blots out the handwriting of ordinances against us, which was contrary to us, and it took, out, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Amen. And 2 Corinthians 3.3, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. This is what God does for us. But what of their children? Verse 2, 
It reads, While the children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills, even their children have been affected by all of this, this nationwide irreverence. The children who, for the Jews, were supposed to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says you should teach them you should teach them diligently to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and strength. But all the children know, all the children remember when they close their eyes to go to bed at night, is these foreign gods, these strange gods, and these horrible sacrifices. They would have seen the sacrifices of little infant children, and that would have been in their memory, and, and that would have taught them about God. But it, it was wrong. Even and, and Manasseh, we know, participated in that. So what altars are we bringing our children to? Do they see us at the altar of the Almighty, humbled before the Lord, the true Lord? Or what gods do they see us trying to appease? Are we teaching them to remember and to place their hope in the true Lord? Verse 3, O my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and all thy treasure for the spoil, and thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders, and thou, even thyself, shalt discontinue from thine heritage that I gave you. And I will cause you to serve thine enemies in the land which you knowest not. For you have kindled a fire in my anger, which shall burn forever. Judah's sin is exposed. Everyone can see it. And now the Lord is sentencing them. All of the physical blessings of the covenant are listed in verses 3 and 4. Or all the blessings that are listed, they will lose. The temple, they're going to lose Jerusalem. The riches, all that was contained in there. And even the land that produced the riches. This is a completely devastating verdict. This will change everything about Judah's future. A people who were supposed to find their identity in the land and its benefits, a people who, whose seed was destined to bless the whole world, here are being told that they will lose it all. And to make it worse, that they will return, as they were in Egypt, to the position of a foreigner and a slave, but this time in Babylon. Earlier in Jeremiah 16, verses 15 and 16, God said, Therefore, behold, the day comes, saith the Lord, that it shall be no more said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he hath driven them. What God is saying in this portion of Scripture is that the exile will overshadow the, um, the bondage, the, the slavery that they endured in Egypt. The exile will be more dramatic, more painful, and more long-lasting physically on the Israelite people than was Egypt. And here was a quote I found about the exile from Daniel Smith Christopher. Virtually all archaeological assessments of the destruction of 587-86 suggest that Jerusalem was treated severely, the walls broken down, and the city plundered, with evidence of Babylon Babylonian destruction everywhere. Many nearby towns also show total cessation of occupation or destruction levels indicating Babylonian battles. 
it is unlikely that any viable material culture could have been maintained above a mere subsistence level. The exile was, in fact, to be a long-term condition for the Jewish people. And we can still see the effects of it today. It wasn't until recently that they even had a state from, from that time. And they've never actually occupied the land like they did before the exile. God is serious about sin and idolatry and where we're putting our trust. In their time of affliction, they forgot about the Lord and they paid dearly. Which brings us to our last three verses. Finally, some hope. Jeremiah was a, deep, uh, a dark book. Um, a poetic picture of what the Lord is trying to get across so that all that are his can see, so that they would know who God is, that he is the I am. These verses are almost directly lifted from the first psalm. His purpose is to serve as a warning, but also as a hope to God's people. Verse 5, thus saith the Lord, cursed is the man. I did say hope, we're getting there. Thus saith the Lord, cursed is the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. The hope. But blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when the heat comes. But her leaf shall be green. And shall, be, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. We see here again clearly that the Lord speaks, how the Lord speaks with our way of trusting in man, and the curse and drought and hopelessness that it brings. Israel, Judah, they trusted in the foreign nations, in the foreign gods. But the way of trusting in God that leads to the fountain of living water that sustains and causes to flourish, not just to survive. So God brings on them their affliction and they will have it their way, whichever way they place their trust, either found trusting in him and redeemed to the knowledge of him or like Israel and Judah, trusting in Egypt and losing the battle and being made a parched, uninhabited wilderness. Do we need another example? Sure, why not? Take another look at the evil king Manasseh. The king who led, started, he kick-started all of this after receiving the kingdom from Hezekiah. The king who led that nation towards idolatry and ruin, who of all the kings is remembered as being the most wicked, who definitely can be accused of all the sins listed of Judah. While scripture details the end of Manasseh's life in Second Chronicles 33, verses 12 and 13, and they read like this. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before God, the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him. And he was entreated, God was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. What a beautiful story of repentance and forgiveness and redemption. If God would extend this mercy and grace to such a despicable man as Manasseh, surely he would to us here today. If we humble ourselves before him in our time of affliction, 
not trusting in our lifeless idols or meager saviors, then we too would know the Lord. And finally, we'll close with another scripture from Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, or the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Thank you very much.